All right, uh, I thought of this really cool icebreaker kind of start for our message. And um, sometimes, you know, like a, as a speaker, I'll go to a different place and they'll ask me for a bio. That's so awkward coming up with a, a biographical description of yourself, right? But that just kind of got me thinking. And so this is, this is the little icebreaker. If you could come up with a paragraph description describing either your best friend or your spouse, what would be the first adjective, the first word that you would choose to describe either your best friend or your spouse? Keep in mind, this is an opportunity for you to score a lot of points. Use it wisely, wisely, okay? Now, what I want you to do is just turn to someone next to you, maybe it is a best friend or a spouse, and just share, well, the first word that comes to mind is blank. And then just, we'll just have one person share, and then, uh, then I'll come back, okay? So go, share, and have fun sharing it. Okay, why don't we have the next person share? Let's just go for it. This fun conversation. Let's have the next person share. Okay, well, <clears throat> you know, on my, on my wedding day, my father-in-law got up and he gave this toast. And basically, part of the point of this toast is I want to introduce to you who you're actually getting married to. And one thing, like one salient feature about Reina that he highlighted in front of everyone is he said to me, uh, Andrew, you know, son-in-law, uh, one thing you should know about Reina is that she is a great roommate. She's a great roommate. And I can, I can prove it to you how. And then he pointed to every bridesmaid and said, every one of those was a former roommate of Reina's. Now, I got to say, after 10 years of marriage, because on the 24th is our anniversary, on 10 years of marriage, yeah, she's all right. <laughs> no, 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 no. Actually, Reina is a fantastic roommate, and she has a quality of best friendship, and I get her to myself as a best friend. And so I, it's very, very true. She's a great roommate and a best friend. But that, that would be one of the top things I would say about Reina. Like, she has this best friend kind of quality. Now, here's the thing. Did you know, this is kind of weird, but did you know that in the book of Exodus, God gives himself a paragraph description? Like, he gives himself a bio. Now, here's the idea. No one really knows what God is like unless he reveals what he's like to us. And in the book of Exodus, I'm, he's like, I'm going to give you like a summary of who I am. Now, it, it came when Moses kind of declared, and I interpret this as like, it's almost like a lifelong request that comes from like the, the pit of his stomach. God, I want to see your glory. Now, can you believe that God actually answers his request, but he doesn't show Moses his front? Because it would just be too much for Moses to handle. Like his eyes would burn out in his sockets because of what he was seeing was so beautiful. So God's like, I'm just going to show you my back or my traces. Now, 
it's, it's, it's a visual presentation, but the interesting thing is not only is um, Moses being visually dazzled beyond imagination, but God gives him an auditory explanation of what he's seen, who his essence is. And so he gives himself like a, a paragraph self-description, and it's in Exodus 34. I'm going to read this to you. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. Can you guys repeat merciful? And gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. Okay, here is God giving himself a self-description. Now, there's a lot of attributes in here. Okay, there's a lot of attributes in here. Amazing attributes. Gracious, patient, loving, faithful, forgiving, justice, disciplinary, holy, right? A lot of attributes in this paragraph, self-description, and you could spend a whole sermon series kind of unpacking each of, of these attributes, but what is the very first attribute that comes out the gate? What's the first thing that God uses to describe himself? Merciful, compassionate. Now, compassion, Latin word paticum, means to suffer with. The first thing that God says, the very heart of my being, I suffer with those who suffer. My heart goes out to people. For those who are in pain, my heart goes out to them. That's what God is like. Almost to the point where you can't say, okay, God's compassionate, and let's just divorce that from all the other attributes like holiness and justice. No, 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 he's all of that blended together in this amazing personal um, combination but certainly, if you miss the very first thing that comes out the gate, you kind of miss the very heart of God. Don't miss this. God is, in his very essence, he is compassionate. He is merciful. He suffers with people. Now, I know that in a crowd like this, there's got to be people who had just a really hard week, or you're going through some stuff that's really hard. And the first thing I just want to reflect about God is that his heart right now is for you that he suffers with you, that he is intimately concerned with how you're doing. Now the first point I want to make is that the first word that God uses to describe himself is compassionate, is merciful. That's the first point. Now we are in a series on the impact that Jesus Christ has made in human history. And inevitably, we have to talk about this huge impact that Jesus made on human history, which is compassion. Hospitals. I don't have to be exhaustive in this description of how he's impacted people towards compassion. Uh, all these mercy movements, these mercy ministries, Samaritan's Purse, World Vision, um, thousands of movements of compassion, all from this one man, Jesus, who modeled compassion, who taught compassion, who embodied compassion. Now, I, I want to go to our second point. Uh, so you have to turn with me to Luke chapter um, 6. Let me just ask you guys, are you guys in the mood for a lot of Scripture today? Can someone just say, 
I am Pastor Andrew. Would you please preach it? Did someone? Okay, thank you. Who was that? Yes, Joyce. Okay, Joyce is hungry for a lot of scripture. I'm serving a lot of scripture, so if you're expecting something else, maybe you can just do like this mid-course, you know, uh, expectation adjustment. We're going to go through a lot of scripture today, okay? So I'm, I hope you're hungry for scripture, okay? Okay, we're going to go through uh, first Luke uh, uh, 7, starting in verse 11. But before we do that, okay, so the first point is, is God's self-description, the first com- thing coming out the gate, is mercy, is compassion. If you fail to, to, to understand that, then you fail to understand the very heart of God. Okay, now let's talk about God's Son, Jesus. God's Son is 100% God. He is the exact representation of God. But at the same time, he's 100% human being. So maybe we can call him God-man. So here is God's son, God-man, who comes to earth. He does have supernatural power, in fact, infinite supernatural power, localized in a human being. And you ask the question, well, how does a person like that leverage his supernatural power? How does that, what does that look like? What, how does that work? And then so what you, what you get in Luke chapter 7 from 11 to 17 is a snapshot of Jesus' power. But let me just say this. There, there were uh, two siblings uh, in our church. They're, they're maybe like ages, well, I shouldn't give you the ages, but they, they, they were young, and they were playing this game, which is like um, they, were, they were identifying certain family members in, in their family with superheroes and what those powers would be. You ever, you ever play a game like that, like over the campfire? And one of the kid goes, oh, oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. I know what mom is. And so the other kid goes, what? And dad goes, what? And, and she says, Mom is the Incredible Hulk. And dad was like, well, why? And, and, and she said, because when mom gets mad, <laughs> she turns into a big green monster. Right? And, uh, and everyone laughed. Uh, okay, who here is guilty of being like the Incredible Hulk? Like, that would be, there you go. Here's some vulnerability. Okay, I'll raise two hands. Some of you are thinking, did your kid say this, Andrew? Okay, and my answer is definitely maybe he did. I'm not telling, no, he didn't. But we, we all struggle with this if you're a parent and you have kids who, you know, at least were at age two. But here is, here is kind of a restatement of human history. Human history is like human beings entrusted with power. Human beings abusing power. Human beings entrusted with glorious power. Human beings abusing that power and now we come to the god man who has infinite power and the question is well how does he leverage that power what does he use you know you might be like okay you know like here's this mountain watch this you guys looking at the mountain he's rolling up his sleeves and he you know okay but let's see what he does the god man with his amazing power verse 11 Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. Notice man, not little boy, only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Luke wants you to know that this was a widow. This was a person that was in desperate need. Dire straits. This is a person who is feeling quite hopeless, and I can tell you why. And Luke goes through pains that actually describe why. Because she was a widow. First of all, she was a widow. And she has a man as a son, which means that she probably was older in age. 
And she only had one son. And that one son died. Now, in ancient times, they didn't have, like, retirement savings. So can you imagine what the name of this boy, this man, was? And the answer is, his name was 401k. That was her 401k. Her hope, her security, her provision, her, her precious was in this man. Now, now, I don't know if you can relate to this because in American culture we do something very different, but I have an auntie in Taiwan. Her name is Akam, okay? When she was born, it's like she was bred for a single purpose in her life. I'm not kidding you, okay? This is not ancient Taiwan. This is like modern Taiwan. And her purpose in life was to take care of her parents when they age. So she had six, seven siblings, and guess what happened? When she aged, she did not marry, she did not have kids, she was 401k. Now something like that is going on in this ancient culture, and her only security was taken from her. Luke wants you to have compassion for this woman. Then he came up, Jesus does a little bit of a no-no. When, when the Lord saw her, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping forward, he had compassion on her. Another translation says that his heart went out to her. And he said to her three words, do not weep. Another translation just puts it in two words, don't cry. Now I imagine that for some of you here, these are just the two words that God has for you. Don't cry. Don't be discouraged. Don't give in to depression. Don't give in to despair. Everything will be okay. Do not give in to fear. Do not disparage. Now, there's only one man in the whole universe who has the authority to say that. Why do I say that? Because of what he does next. Now, actually, what he does next is a little bit of a no-no. He came up and he touched the, how do you say that? I think it's called beer. And now the beer is where you put the coffin on. It was the platform where you put the coffin and the whole procession is coming forward and Jesus touches the beer. And you're not supposed to touch the beer because they have cleanliness laws. And so the beer is touching the coffin and the coffin is touching the dead man and the dead man is unclean. So there's this process of contagion, you know, you're getting all these things unclean. But then Jesus touches the beer. But what's funny is that the unclean doesn't spread to Jesus, but the clean of Jesus actually spreads to the beer. And then what happens is he says, young man, I say to you, Rise. This is the same voice that said, let there be light, and there was light. And that same voice says to this young man, young man, I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear sees them all, and they glorify God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. I just, I just want you to imagine what that scene was like. This, this woman who was just racked in despair, her precious, was just taken from her. And then Jesus says, Don't cry. And then Jesus speaks, and the, you know, can you imagine her just... <gasps> You know, and the party that she threw that night and the food that she cooked. 
It just makes you feel like wherever there is Jesus around, there is always joy, you know? Broken things getting fixed, dead people coming back to life. My, my, my point, though, is this. My first point was, look, the first word that God uses to describe himself is compassion. And now you look at his son, and you, you see he has infinite power. How does he leverage that power? And he leverages that power out of compassion. This is the one incorruptible man. And look at his compassion. Now, would you turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10. So, the father, compassion. The son, embodied compassion. And my third point is Jesus taught compassion. But it's not so much Jesus taught compassion. You guys ever have this thing where you're, uh, you're reading the scripture and you've like read it 50 times. I've read like um, the Good Samaritan like 50, more than 50 times. I've taught on it at least two, maybe three times like here in this pulpit. But it's one of those things where you feel like, okay, I got this. I've taught this so many times. I've read the commentaries. I've heard these, these, this preaching. I got this thing. And then you're reading it and somehow your little package just explodes. Or you feel like you are handling the scripture and then suddenly something happens. You feel like, what happened yesterday? The scripture started handling me. Now, I'm going to share with you a parable that you've heard before, but um, I don't know, maybe the same thing will happen for you that, that just happened to me actually yesterday where I just feel like, well, I'll, I'll, explain, I'll explain what happened. Okay, let's, let's go through this parable. Let's go through this parable. So my point here is that Jesus taught compassion, but I, I, you know, you gotta, you gotta uh, blow that up. You gotta expand that. I'm just gonna go through the parable and then I'll, I'll kind of wrap up with some thoughts. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, some things I like to point out is the, the, the scripture says that this person's a lawyer, but really, this person is a lawyer of what text? He's a lawyer of the laws in the Old Testament, right? And the prophets, right? But so he's an expert in these biblical texts, which kind of makes him not just a lawyer, but a theologian. So here is a lawyer slash theologian. But what he does is a funny thing is he, he stands up, which means before he was sitting down. Now, a person would stand up, and when they stand up in front of a teacher, they are identifying themselves in the place of a student. I'm here to learn. I respect the teacher. And not only that, but he says teacher, which means he respects. I look to you as a teacher. But the scripture also says that he was standing up to test Jesus. It's almost like I want you to say something wrong and I can take that out of context and use that on you later with my party. So not only do we have this man as a lawyer and as a theologian, but he's also a hypocrite, right? Because he's, he's, he's taking the role of a learner, but really he's trying to challenge his, his teacher um, subversively. But he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I have a friend, and he, and he has kind of a bit of a mean streak in him, and he would say something like this, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Just stupid people. Now, w what's happening here? This, this person is not stupid, but uh, the question's a little bit stupid. Now, what, not stupid, but the, the, the question is actually built on a wrong premise. There's some underlying assumptions in this question that's wrong, okay? He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So really, the, the main idea is that internal life is something that I can do to earn. 
do to inherit. And if I do enough of that stuff, I can get it, okay? Now, I know just from the scriptures that Jesus fundamentally disagrees with this. And that's why, you know, like Luke, the Gospel of Luke, people have said it's like one very long passion narrative. It's, it's Jesus on the way to the cross. Now, why does Jesus need to go to the cross It's because people by themselves cannot earn heaven. That's why he's going to the cross. So fundamentally, this question is wrong. But let's keep on going. Let's see how Jesus kind of deals with him. And and he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Sometimes the best way to answer someone's question is with another question. And that's what Jesus does. The best way to get this conversation going is to ask you another question. I'm not going to commit to this conversation until you commit first. You tell me how you read it first, especially because I kind of know you're trying to trap me. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, I... I would say that for this lawyer, I believe that Jesus would agree with him. This is the first and second greatest commandment. But I already told you how he, how he would fundamentally disagree with the very question. But this is not how you earn salvation. But yes, this is the most important thing that you can do as a human being. Love God with all of heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And I would say this. Jesus has actually affirmed in different places this is the first and second greatest commandment, and they go hand in hand. If you really love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, then you cannot help but very naturally love your neighbor as yourself. But here, it works the opposite way too. If we are guilty in any way of not loving our neighbor as ourselves, then fundamentally what we've done is we've broken the first commandment. Uh, Here's an illustration of this. You know King David. King David, great man, you know, uh, he, he was a man after God's own heart. But during his lifetime, more towards the end, he committed adultery, he slept with Bathsheba, and then he planned to have her husband murdered. Now, after he was found out, he repented. He fell down on his knees, he cried, genuinely repented. But you remember, he wrote this psalm, Psalm 51. And in that psalm, he says, against you, God alone, have I sinned. Now, just imagine, like this in court, right? And Uriah the Hittite, you know, uh, his mom is like arguing the case of Uriah. Imagine that, like, really, really, the only person that you've offended is God? You had my son killed. And then you slept with his wife. Actually, it was in the other order. And then you corrupted the military, and then you betrayed your very office as king because you're supposed to be the integrity of justice, and you, you, you perverse that. But when King David says, against you and you alone have I sinned, he was right. Because the person that was most offended was not Uriah the Hittite's mom. It was God. And that means that whenever we lust at a woman we're not supposed to be lusting after, the person most offended is God. It means that when we are neglecting our parents, 
The person most offended is not our parents, but it's God. It means that when we haven't forgiven someone who has hurt us, the person most offended by that lack of forgiveness is God. Now, you see where this is, this, this is heading. And let's go on. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. How do you think Jesus said this? If fundamentally Jesus disagreed with the entire premise of the question that this is the way that you can earn salvation, how do you think Jesus would actually say this? I, I think a lot of times we read this text and look, Jesus was a very dynamic person. He wasn't monotone. He wasn't just bland. Jesus was dynamic. His range of dynamicism was very, very large. I imagine he said this sarcastically. It's just my interpretation. I think he said, look, you have answered correctly. All you got to do is do that, and you will live. Yeah, good luck with that, buddy. Go for it. Go for it. Try that out. Let's see how that works for you. Now, if, if you take it in a sarcastic tone, then 29 makes more sense because the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now listen, if Jesus gave a pat answer, it's like, okay, it's settled. I'm going to go and earn it. Then end of discussion. But if Jesus kind of mocked his fundamental premise, then this guy is kind of agitated and he wants to defend himself. And I think right here he's trying to defend himself. He's like, Okay, hold it. Who is my neighbor? Let's, let's unpack this. Because Jesus, you're going to tell me someone that I'm actually already loving. And once you tell me someone that I'm actually already loving, I'm going to tell you, Jesus, I'm loving him. And then I will earn salvation because I'm on the right track. That's what he's thinking. Now, Jesus is about to explode his mind. Some of you look sleepy. Would you be open to Jesus exploding your mind right now? He did that for me with this, the study of this text be ready. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. I, I just want to explain one thing that, that um, actually from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jerusalem's built on a, on a mountain or a hill, and so actually to go to Jericho, you go, you know, geographically, you go downhill. Now, these robbers, they stripped him, and that was because clothing back then was valuable. So this guy has like a Banana Republic shirt. I'm going to take it. It's valuable. It's worth something, okay? They took it, and they beat him unconscious. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the other place, saw him and passed by on the other side. Now, a priest uh, was probably really like a farmer as his other occupation, but for two weeks, he would go, he would serve at the temple, and then he would go back to his farm, okay? So he just spent two weeks, he's probably going back to his farm, and then he sees this guy. Now, what he does is he just walks past him. Now, I actually can argue his case. I'm going to try to argue his case. I think it actually kind of makes sense because back then you could identify a person two ways. You could identify them by what they would wear and you would identify them by uh, the, the language they would speak, the dialect they would speak. Now, this guy was half dead, which means he's not going to get up and speak to you in a dialect where you can go, oh, that guy is from Galilee. And he's not wearing any clothes, so you can't like, put him in any sort of class. 
Back then, by the, by the seaside, there were people who still spoke Phoenician. Like in Galilee, there would be people who would speak Syriac and, um, and, and, and Greek. And then if you were peasant class, you would speak Aramaic. But if you were like more like priest, you would speak Hebrew. And then there was like Roman officials and they would speak Latin. I can't put this guy in any class because he's naked and he's unconscious. And I'm a priest, right? I don't have to really serve anybody. I mean, if this person is a fellow Jew, sure, I'll help him. But this person could be, I don't know, he could be a Samaritan. I'm not really obligated to help Samaritans. I can't even identify this guy. Plus, there's more to this. Now, this guy is unconscious. And so, you know, if I touch him, I just spent two weeks in the temple. If I touch him, then I become unclean. and I have to go back to the temple for a week to do purification rites. And I told my honey, I was going to be back like around now, right? I mean, I could get a stick and poke him, but you know, I mean, right? And listen, this is a dangerous road. I got to keep on moving. I got to keep on moving. If I stop and this guy was just freshly jumped, someone might jump me. Now, reasonably, he should have just walked on by, and reasonably, that's what he did. And so, you know, the Levite who's actually there in the temple assisting the priest, you know, you you assist someone, then you kind of look up to them. He follows precedent, and he walked over him. I guess I'll walk over him too. Now, this, the text says this. But a, say that word for me. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you said that word. You know, later on, the uh, lawyer can't even bring himself to say that word. That is a bad word. That is the S word. Uh, so a little bit of history on the Samaritans. So what happened in the history of Israel is that the mighty Assyrians came and they invaded and they captured and they basically, um, uh, they basically conquered the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And now that they were in control, what they did is they deported all the leaders from this, uh, from this northern kingdom. So they took the artisans, they took the priests, they took the nobles, they took all the people who were leaders, and they deported them to, a different, like, to Assyria and to different places. And so basically you have this nation and its head cut off, you decapitated the nation, and they're thinking if we decapitate them at nation, then, then basically they won't be as likely to rebel. And then they took leaders from other countries and they, they actually deported them into. And what happened is that these Jews, they intermarried with these, these other people, these foreigners, these leaders who were taken from other countries. And now they intermarried, but then they had this, a lot of confusion in their religion because they only subscribed to the first five books of the Bible, Moses, but then all the stuff about King David, that's the southern states. And we don't want all that political drama, so they actually cut out major portions of the prophets and the, and the Bible. So their, their, their religion is really, really confused. And then they built this temple and the Jews didn't like it. So they came and they destroyed the temple. So there was this, this racial tension. Uh, they were half-breeds. They were people of compromise. They were people who were polluted. Okay, so there's all this tension. You know this about the Samaritans. So basically when Jesus gives this uh, Samaritan as the hero, it's like saying, you know, the first person to walk by was like the lead pastor, Right? And the second person who walked by was like Kevin, the chairman of the board. I mean, you're, you're offended by this. But then the hero of the story is really like the Muslim cleric or like the child molester or like the porn star. Really? Really? Did Jesus really do this? Yes, he did. He really did do this. 
But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. His heart went out to him. He suffered with him. He saw his condition, and he related to that condition, and his heart was broken. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So how do you bind up wounds? Oh, yeah, I just had like a bunch of rags on the mule. No. Where did he get the rags? He probably took his like Hollister shirt and ripped it. Okay? Probably took his own shirt and ripped it. Oil and wine, I don't know, anesthetic, probably, cleansed the wound. And then he set him on his own animal. Well, think about this. He was probably riding the animal, right? Now you got this guy that you're carrying on the animal, which means that you're walking on foot. And he brought him to an inn. An inn wasn't really like the Marriott or the, you know, or the Holiday Inn. It was more like a person with a bigger room so they can put the animals. And then there was an extra cot. Right? And so at least this person could, could have a place of shelter where they can gain their strength. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back. Now, this is really important. We, we overlook this part. What he was doing at this point was he was buying this man's freedom. Because here's the thing let's say you're sick, let's say you're beaten up, you don't regain your health for six weeks. Then you come to your own senses, and then you're walking about. You are now six weeks in debt. If you don't have that money, the only thing you could do, you can't declare bankruptcy. The only thing you could do is sell yourself into slavery. So the good Samaritan is like, I don't want this guy to go into slavery. I will pay for his debt, no matter how long he stays, to buy his freedom from slavery. Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. (laughs) Uh, Again, I've read this passage for like 50 times and uh, then yesterday, I was like, I, I'm not fit to preach this. I just felt this conviction. I, 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 I can't preach this. And the, the reason why I would say fundamentally to me is because look at what the Samaritan does. I mean, does this disturb you? I mean, I don't know, who, who among you calls yourself a Christian? But then you have a parable like this. I mean, this has to disturb you, right? Does, does it bother you that you have a parable like this in your Bible and you profess to follow Jesus? I'm, I'm, not, getting, I'm, not, being, I'm not getting down on you. I'm just saying that this is radical, revolutionary stuff because look, look at how much the Samaritan gives. Now look, I, I'm just, I don't know, maybe you guys are like me. I have all my resources, and of my resources, I need this much for comfortable living. And, okay, 
and then I'm fine being generous with the stuff that doesn't interfere with my comfort. (laughs) But here is this Samaritan, and you ask the question like, okay, Jesus, how much are you calling us to give? And what does the Samaritan give? The Samaritan, like he rips up his own shirt, he lets this person take his ride, he puts him in an inn, he cares for him, and then he pays for his debt in the future. Now, this totally takes out of his comfort and his convenience. And so, as a Christian, I I would say to you, I feel uncomfortable and disturbed by this parable. I don't know if you feel the same way. But I almost feel like Jesus is saying, my standard for what it looks like to love is pretty high. Now, I think when you read this, it leads you to two responses. Number one, you're just like, Lord, I haven't done that, and I'm broken, I'm broken, I'm I've fallen short of really obeying your commands, and I need your grace. I need you on that cross. Oh, man, if I ever needed you on the cross, I need you on that cross in light of your standard of what it looks like to love my neighbor. I'm not just, I'm not doing it. I don't know. I'm not doing this nearly like, like the moral standard that Jesus shows us. I've read this 50 times. I almost feel like I've mastered it. And then I look at my life, and it falls short. I need Jesus on that cross. But at the same time, it convicts me. You know, you know, it was funny. I was going to tell you this story. <laughs> I was going to tell you this story of how, like, um, you know, because as a pastor, you come up with these stories. And, and so, you know, like, I, I live in Alameda. I don't really uh, see a lot of, like, you know, poor people in, in Alameda. And I go to El Cerrito. And I drive right into my office, and I just go to work. But, you know, at lunchtime, I get hungry. And so I go down the street, and there's this homeless man, and his name is James. And I go to Subway, because Subway has the $5 foot long. And I, you know, I love a deal. It's five, yeah, you're, you're nodding at me. It's, it's a good deal. It's a really good deal, right? And so you know what I do is I actually don't eat a foot long, because I'm trying to, to lose weight. And I, just, I just eat half of that sandwich. And so I've met this guy, James, and I will give him half of my sandwich. And um, that's what we'll do. I'll just go to a subway. I'll go, hey, James, I'm going to pick up a sandwich. You want half of it? And he'll go, yep. And then you know what I do is I actually I'll get that half sandwich. I go, here you go. God bless you. And I'll just walk down the street. And I just feel like I've done my, my thing. But then I look at the Good Samaritan, and he did so much more. He sacrificed his comfort. He was inconvenienced, you know, and so I feel like God's saying, maybe you can do more for this man. So you know what I did two weeks ago is I said, hey, James, and I gave him half the sandwich, and this is big for me. What I did is I just stood there and ate my sandwich with him. Oh, oh, wow. You know, I wanted to share this story to impress you guys. Wow, he's such a good pastor. Oh, but I look at, at the Good Samaritan. What did he do? He probably took James in his car. You know, he, I don't know, but, but I just don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm cutting it to Jesus' standards. Love this person like you would want to be loved. Am I doing that? Half a sandwich. I don't really have to sacrifice for that. I'm really not being that inconvenienced because I'm not really eating that other half of the sandwich. I'm good. I can live with this teaching, but I can't live with this teaching. Do you see what I'm saying? This is convicting, radical, revolutionary stuff. It's saying give to the point of sacrifice. Give to the point where you can't really enjoy your, all your comforts because your compassion is beating out of you and you're having to take and 
take from your, you have to sacrifice from your comfort levels. Are you doing that? I'm not doing that. And this scripture slams me. It slams me and says, I need the cross. I need a savior who, who can forgive me because I have not loved my brother and I have offended him first and foremost. I've, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. But it also shows me that I have a long ways to go in being like Jesus. Now, who is the great Samaritan? It's Jesus Christ. He took from his comforts of heaven and he became a human being. Not only that, but he spent three years in ministry with us and then he endured the most tormenting pain on the cross. Why did he do it? Because he was buying our freedom so we wouldn't be slaves. Isn't that what the, great Samarit- the good Samaritan did? That is what Jesus Christ did and to the point that you know that and this sense of like, I don't measure up, but Jesus earned heaven for me on the cross. Then you are free, not to, to give off the top, not to give when it's convenient, but to give sacrificially. That's the only way you can do it. Now remember, this, uh, um, this series is about the impact that Jesus Christ has made on human history. And so I want to close on this story. But that third point is Jesus taught compassion, but he didn't just teach compassion, but radical, sacrificial, inconvenient compassion that slams me and challenges me and inspires me all at the same time. I don't know if it does it to you. It should. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what happened. Um, in 165 A.D., there was the emperor Marcus Aurelius. You know that because of um, Gladiator, right? There's this great plague. There's a great plague that, um, that spread. Now, you've probably heard this. I believe it was the first great plague. And it killed, in the Roman Empire, one out of every three or four people. Now, to this day, we actually think that it was probably smallpox. We think it was smallpox. And so I want to describe to you what was happening to large masses of people, but really, I'll, I'll just tell you what, what happens when a person is dying from smallpox. And I think I need to be explicit because this was the reality of this day, so I'm going to be, but this is what happened. Uh, smallpox starts with a rash. And then there's symptoms like having the flu. So there's muscle pain, there's fatigue, there's headache. And then it involves your digestive system. I suppose that, that goes to the next stage where there's nausea, there's vomiting, there's backache. But just imagine the worst flu ever. But then when it develops even more, you get lesions on the inside of your mouth, tongue, throat. And later, there's fluid that fills like blisters and it starts on your forehead, it spreads to your face, and then trunk and extremities. Now, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, smallpox killed somewhere between a third to a fourth of the population. Just imagine that happening in America. One out of every three people, one out of every three or four people dying, okay? Now, I'm going to show you a picture of what this looks like for, I I feel almost like apologetic for having to show you this picture because it's so, but you need to understand what the real Christians and what the real time, what they were facing, because it's reality. So, Here's a picture just so that you can understand what it was like. Okay, ah, I can't even, uh, 
can't even look at that. You don't have to look at that. Uh. So the smallpox was just, just ravaging their, their empire. One out of every three, one out of every four people. And, and I want to share with you what was written about what people were doing at that time. This is historically 165 AD. Mass people died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any, intentional, of any intention for care. The bodies of the dying were heaped up one on top of the other. No fear of God or law of men had a restraining influence. Here, here's what another person wrote to describe it. At the first onset of the disease, they, the people, the masses, they, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avoid the spread and the contagion of the fatal disease. Okay? It was a virus. You could, you could uh, contract that. It was contagious, and you would wind up looking like that, right? And so what people would do is, even before the, the, you just see the first signs, they would push them out as if they're, you're already dead. Because I got to protect myself. This was happening to the masses and the populations. You know what the Christians did? The Christians remembered what Jesus said. The Christians remembered this parable about the Good Samaritan. They remembered Jesus saying, go and do likewise. They remembered and reflected upon Jesus and his great sacrifice for them. So you know what they did? They brought them in. They took care of them. If their family members were sick, they gave them food and water. They took care of them. And they even took care of strangers that they didn't know who had these lesions on their faces, knowing that if they nursed them and brought them back to health, they actually might get the disease themselves. But they did it, and they did it. Heedless of the danger, this is what the third century bishop of Alexandria wrote, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Now, this is my point, okay? We look at the Great Samaritan. I know it's, it's, it's easy. We want a comfortable Christian faith where it's like, I can have my comforts. I don't have to sacrifice. I can just give off the top. But these early Christians, did they sacrifice? Yes. Do I have to serve and love people to the point where it causes me pain? Yes, even death. And that's what happened to Jesus. And that's the path that he calls us to walk on to. Now listen, I'm still working out what this means. But this scripture challenges me. It's got to challenge you. What is God calling us to do? What is God calling you to do? And you ask God, how much do you want me to give? Reflect on this parable and you answer that question as the Holy Spirit leads you. Now this lawyer, he was like, look, who is my neighbor? Because I want you to tell me someone that I'm already loving. And Jesus points out the person in his life who he has deemed unlovable. So you guys are like, who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes, this person right here who you're not loving. Who is that person? Is it your in-law? Is it your sibling? Is it your former boss? Is it your ex-husband? Is it your, your, your kid who has grown up to be a teenager and they have grown to be so unlovable? 
because we need to draw on the unconditional love of God displayed on the cross in order for us to be able to love these people. And God says, yes, that's the person that I want you to love. Let's stand up. Father, your scripture, it it really challenges me. It it floors me. It it crushes me. And yet at the same time, it gives me grace because, because we have not loved our neighbor as we should. That's why you died on the cross and that's why we need you so much. Of all people we've offended by not loving as we should have, we've offended you. But then you provide the grace for us. Lord, I pray that in this moment you would show us who we have regarded as most undeserving of love. And I pray that you would just bring names and and faces and, and people we know to mind. Or maybe it's the homeless person that we walk by every day. And as we see the good Samaritan who gave out of sacrifice, not out of convenience, I pray that you would show us what you are calling us to give so we can be like Jesus. It is all for your glory, Lord. We pray unto the one who gave up everything, who was the great Samaritan, who gave up everything to set us free, to pay our debt so we wouldn't be in slavery. And now we are forever indebted to him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.